I'd like to begin with a question. Do you remember the first time you were someone challenged you on your beliefs? I mean challenged you. I don't mean, you know, you have people that will ask you a passing question and they really don't care what the answer is. You know, you could say anything you want and they would say, oh, that's good. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the first time somebody really challenged you, sort of got into your face over something you believe or asking you about something that you believe. Now, growing up around the church and, of course, a part of the church really all of my life, I have to say that in, in the early years, I don't remember anything like that. Now, part of the reason, of course, I'm a very young boy. And also, we had no church to attend. So you could easily hide your beliefs. You know, you, you, we, we listened to the radio program. That was our church. It was the Radio Church of God. And the radio was, of course, where we had church. Uh, we listened to the broadcast every night. Uh, on the Sabbath, we read, my mother would read literature to us. My father wasn't interested at all. We lived on the farm. We worked together. It was all family on the farm. But no one asked that I'm aware of. We sort of blended in. And of course, as you're growing up, you want to be as normal as possible. You don't want anyone to believe that there's anything odd about you. And so we made it through those years. I don't recall much happening. Uh, my mother, my sister, and I, we kept the Sabbath, we kept the holy days, but we sort of kept to ourselves. On the farm, uh, everybody worked a full week, of course, on the farm, and usually a half day on Saturday. Well, we didn't work on Saturday, but that wasn't terribly abnormal. Uh, so we just simply didn't go. We didn't really go out of the house. We might go out for a walk or something, but basically from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, we were in the house. And that was okay. Everybody was out doing what they wanted. There wasn't a strong religious content in our family. In fact, when my grandfather, when he was approaching his death and talking about his funeral, he said, now don't take me into a church. He said, it would be a hypocritical. He said, I've never been to church in my life, never had a suit on in my life, and don't you dare put a suit on me. Put my overalls on and bury me in my overalls. Well, my grandmother, of course, honored that, but she couldn't, she couldn't uh, help herself. She had to have a service in a church, even though she didn't go herself. So our family wasn't religious, and so therefore we weren't challenged on our beliefs that I recall. But then in 1961, in July of 1961, we received a letter from Pasadena announcing the beginning of a church service, a congregation in Memphis, Tennessee. And of course, we were supposed to be there. That changed everything because now it became obvious that you were believing something different. You got, you drove all the way to Memphis for church. And so now family members begin to say, well, why are you going to Memphis for church? And why are you going on Saturday? After all those years, they really didn't even know what we believed. But now the challenges began to come. But the first real challenge for me came when I was 12 years old and I was in the sixth grade. I was in the sixth grade and 12 years old, and one of my classmates, her name was Barbara, became ill. And one day at class, she was there. The next day, she wasn't. And then it was so quick, about six weeks later, our teacher announced that Barbara had died. She had had leukemia and died very quickly. And the whole class was going to her funeral. 
Now, my teacher that year happened to be a lay minister in the Church of Christ. And he had already challenged me a little bit, not, not a big deal, when I went to the Feast of Tabernacles that year. Well, why are you doing that? I said, well, you know, it's, it's something, it's in the Bible. He said, well, but it's Jewish. And of course, he went through all of that. But he didn't make a big deal out of it. But now we went to the funeral, our entire class. And it was in this old clapboard building, an old church out in the country in a little town called Truman, Arkansas. And in this cemetery, or I'm sorry, out in the middle of the cemetery was this old church, very small. In fact, it was so small that our whole class, we couldn't get into the, into the church. So we were asked to stay out in the lobby, the vestibule area, and some of us outside, which is where I was. The Baptist preacher, of course, preached her into heaven. Well, she's, you know, said, don't worry about Barbara. She's up in heaven looking down at all of us now. And she's okay, so don't worry about her. Well, of course, I knew enough that I knew I didn't believe that. That wasn't what I believed. But I didn't have to shout it to anyone. I didn't have to tell anyone until we got back to school. And this lay minister of the Church of Christ, he intuitively knew that I probably didn't believe that, given the fact that I had been to the Feast of Tabernacles. So here came the challenge. He said, where do you think Barbara is? And he said, well, don't you think she's in heaven? And I said, well, no, I don't. Well, that really opened the door. He said, well, where do you think she is? You don't think she's in hell, do you? And I said, well, no, I, I don't believe that. He said, well, what do you believe? And then I proceeded to explain to him the first, second, third resurrections, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and everything I knew all at once. His comment was, you believe what? You believe what? It is accepted commonly that if you are a Christian, you believe in going to heaven. Or maybe as a Catholic, you have the in-between, you have purgatory for those that, I guess, don't quite get to heaven. They have a stopover on the way, maybe an overnight on the way or whatever it may be before they actually get to heaven. But the, in purgatory, you, I believe, eventually do get to heaven. And of course, no one wants to talk about the other alternative, and that is hell. But he was shocked. He was shocked that I didn't believe that this beautiful little girl who sat actually next to me in class, that I did not believe she was in heaven. It was horrible for me to believe that. And I was challenged that day on my beliefs. I don't know that I handled it very well. I handled it probably as well as any 12-year-old could handle it. It just simply wasn't right, what had been said that day at the funeral. And I knew it wasn't right. Now, over the years as a pastor, when meeting new people and discussing the church and the truth that we all believe in, uh, this question would come up, and individuals would explain their background and how they were having conflict within their families. Often the conflict would be over the Sabbath, or over the holy days, or the holidays. See, rarely would it be over heaven and hell, because you just don't go around starting a conversation with, do you believe you're going to heaven? It's something that people assume about all of us. Well, surely you believe that. Surely you believe that. But the challenge is, 
occasionally, and it is a distinct challenge when someone questions you about heaven, hell, or put another way, about judgment. How will we be judged? Is there a more significant question that needs to be asked of all of us and what we believe and of what others believe as well? Rather than assuming, well, everyone believes, as, as I believe most people in the world, everyone believes that when you die, you're going to go to heaven or, again, you would go to hell. If you stop and think about it, probably the, this is probably the one teaching that truly separates us from what is considered Christianity. In fact, virtually all of Christianity believes in a form of when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. Your judgment takes place at death, and the sentence is carried out at death, or the reward. There's something fundamental, fundamentally missing, though. The true understanding of a resurrection. But how do you sort it all out? The destiny of humanity, heaven, hell, the resurrections, the judgment. How do you sort it out? What is really the truth? And what is taught today? What does Scripture tell us about this future and about judgment? Recently, I found a very interesting book. The title of the book is The Bible With and Without Jesus. With and Without Jesus. It's written by, there are two authors. One is Amy Jill Levine, and the other is Mark Zevi Brettler. And their purpose in the book was to read the Bible from a Christian perspective, and then read the Bible from a Jewish perspective. Of course, from the Jewish perspective, it's only what we would consider the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And would you come to the same conclusions? After all, it's a book. What does it say? And they came to certain conclusions, which I think were quite, quite interesting. Uh, the concept of the book, as I said, is that everyone brings bias to the Scriptures. Everyone. And their contention is that everyone does what's called proof texting. That is, you look for scriptures to support what you already believe. Very few people, I mean, again, I'm sure there are some, read the Bible, again, I'm talking about as a blank slate, to determine what they believe. So if you're Jewish, when you read the Bible, you see certain things differently than if you are, quote, a Christian reading the Bible. Everyone, everyone, as they contend, practices proof texting. And they say, well, they, all obviously, they agree. They believe there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with finding Scripture to support what you believe. You have to be careful, of course, when Scripture contradicts what you believe. And that's where the problem comes in. Here's a quote from, uh, from their book. It says, any biblical text can be manipulated to prove any point, and any text, even one not recited by a prophet, can be taken as prophetic. And their, their points were basically around some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. The prophecies in the Old Testament that we clearly see referring to Christ. The Jews don't see that at all. Not in their writings. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Psalm 110. They do not see those as referencing Christ, or Isaiah chapter 9 as being a prophecy about Christ, or Zechariah being prophecies about Christ. They don't see that at all. But yet a Christian will read those same verses, those same scriptures, and say, well, that's obvious, that's a prophecy of Christ. 
Of course, the advantage is the Christian has the New Testament and therefore sees the Scriptures. So they already have a belief about Christ as the Messiah. And so therefore, when they read the prophecies, they see that. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it makes their point that no one comes to Scripture unbiased. Now again, no one may be a bit of an overstatement, but in generally, general, people don't. Another example they, they quote in the book is a book that came out originally back in 1997, you may recall, called The Bible Code. The Bible Code, uh, written by Michael Drosnan. It first came out in 1997. The Bible Code 2 came out in 2002. The Bible Code 3 came out in 2010. Uh, in, in, the, in this book, they, they have a quote about it. It says, with the right program, referring, the Bible Code is based upon uh, computerizing the Bible. And, and putting in certain codes. Say, well, give me every fifth word in the Bible. And, and again, it would come out with messages. Or give me every tenth word or whatever it may be. And it wasn't terribly complicated, but it got people's attention. Oh, it's there. It's a hidden code. There's something hidden in the Bible. Well, obviously, there are things in the Bible that people don't understand, but it's not, you know, be careful with saying it's hidden. It's hit some sort of hidden code, and of course they contend, which I agree with, that that sort of says that God is trying to get people. God is trying to, to destroy people, and so therefore he's hidden this code in there that he's only going to reveal to certain people. Now it's really not quite that way. We understand the truth that others don't understand because God opens our mind, not that the scripture changes, but he opens our mind not to some sort of secret code in Scripture. And yet I recall in 1997 a number of members getting caught up in this Bible code. Wow, that's amazing. We, we know that there is special knowledge in the Bible for us and not for the world. Well, why is that? The Scripture tells us because there's a veil over their understanding. Not that God is trying to hide, you know, this a mathematical or me uh, mechanical or computerized code in Scripture. Let's take the Sabbath, for example. The Sabbath isn't hidden at all. It's straight through Scripture, all the way there, clearly there. And yet, why do people not believe it? Because, again, they're blinded to that. Not to some sort of hidden information, but their understanding has been clouded, or a veil is over that, which is a different matter than this. They have this quote about it. It says, With the right programs and by ignoring all evidence to the contrary, the Bible can be found to have predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, and pretty much anything else you want to make out of this, quote, hidden code. But it's, it's, it is flawed. That whole concept is flawed. The truth is available in Scripture, but its understanding is cloudy or not given to those who have obviously been blinded to the truth. There is a calling, there is an opening of your mind. Because think about this, this would imply that in order to seek out this sort of secret code in the scripture, uh, you either must have the supercomputer to do it, or you must, have, you, you must be able to piece all of this together like some sleuth or Bible scholar to be able to do it. Only a Bible scholar could really figure it all out. Consider that certainly in the early days of the church and even somewhat today, the people that God has called and opened their minds are not the brilliant of the world. In fact, what are we told? They are the less honorable of the world. 
during the 50s and the 60s especially, a period of time when I remember very well in growing up in the church, mostly were farmers. I knew a number of members during those early years who could not read or write, but knew it was the truth. I shouldn't say numbers, I, I knew a few. They could not read or write, but they knew it was the truth when they heard it explained. God opened their minds. It wasn't that they found some code in the Bible that was secret. So the truth is there. The truth is there in Scripture. Well, heaven and hell are the words that sort of jump out at you. The real question is about judgment. How does God judge human beings? Is there one standard or does it vary? Is there one standard for this group, another standard for this group? Is there a single plan or is it a bit more convoluted than that? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we'll begin. Hebrews chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This is the only place in Scripture that this term appears, eternal judgment. Now, there's nothing overtly difficult about the term. In fact, you could say final judgment, and I don't think you would do any damage to what's being mentioned here. Eternal judgment is simply judgment that's for eternity. It's judgment once it's rendered, once it's carried out, it will not change. It's eternal. But what is that judgment? What is it based upon? I've titled my sermon today, You Believe What? <laughs> you know, based upon what I was told in the incredulity of my instructor, you believe what? Also, we have uh, one of our FI students this year, uh, we were talking the other day and he was explaining how he had gotten interested in the church. He grew up in the church, or around the church. His mother was a member. His father was not. But he didn't pay much attention to what the church believed until his brother became interested and was about to be baptized. And then his brother lowered the boom on him and said, you know you don't go to heaven when you die. He said, you believe what? And then began his journey to find out what the truth really was. You believe what? Sort of the, a concept that it's so foreign in the world today that you actually believe. Now, again, I say foreign. There are a lot of people that don't profess Christianity today who may have other beliefs. There are all kinds of beliefs today. But generally in what's called the Christian community, it is a belief that you go to heaven. Now, consider Romans 6, verse 23, though. Let's consider eternal judgment. Eternal judgment, as I said, is permanent. It's judgment that will be rendered and it will not be changed. That's the final judgment. That's going to come at some point for every single human being. What are the options? You know, let, let's find out what our options are. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us the two options. Are the two things or two possibilities for judgment. 
Romans 6, verse 23, we're told the wages of sin is death. That's one possibility for eternal judgment. And we're talking about the second death, ultimately there. We all die once, as we know, the second death. And the gift of God is eternal life, the second option. So eternal judgment is really two options. There are really two options for eternal judgment, either eternal death or eternal life. So it's not overly complicated from that perspective. There are no nuances. There's no really purgatory or something of that nature. It's, this is the judgment, the final judgment. Now keep in mind that judgment is similar to what we have in our court system today. There is a period of trial that's also referred to as judgment, and then there's passing of sentence. And often those two are separated. Consider the court cases today, the recent case of the uh, police officer in, in Minnesota who was convicted, what, a month ago now. But he will not be sentenced until next month or the following month. So keep in mind that judgment consists of those two parts, trial and passing of sentence. But it's final judgment as we're told. Now, it seems like that it's only, they're only twice a year, maybe, and again, I'm, this is probably an exaggeration as well, that we address this particular subject. On the Feast of Trumpets, we talk about the return of Christ and the first resurrection, which obviously is the conclusion, the, you might say the sentence or the reward for those who've been judged during this lifetime. And, of course, we talk about that. And then on the last great day, the last great day, sort of the, the conclusion of all the festivals for another year. We have messages and sermons on that day about this last great day, the great white throne judgment, the final judgment that's going to occur at the end of God's plan. But other than that, we probably don't talk a lot about it. We don't cover it a lot. Again, that's maybe an exaggeration, but I, I believe that's pretty, uh, pretty clear. We save that for those holy days. But we must understand that this is such a significant belief. How we approach this belief is extremely important. As I said, it involves, think about this, this thing of judgment involves every human being who's ever lived. The best estimate that I can find of the number of people who've lived on this earth in the past 6,000 years is 100 billion people. 100 billion people. Now, if you say that 1% of those people, 1% are in the first resurrection, again, I'm not suggesting that's true, but 1%, that leaves 99 billion people who are waiting for this day. 99, it's not a small deal. In fact, outside of the return of Jesus Christ, I cannot imagine a greater, more significant event in all of human history than this judgment that's going to occur. Imagine 99 billion people resurrected to be judged. How does your mind even wrap, wrap around that number? Can you imagine that? All at this period of time after the millennium, we're told. We're clearly told there's only one resurrection before the millennium. That's the first resurrection. Any other resurrection that takes place must be after the millennium. The first resurrection deals with a very small section of humanity. Again, being very, very liberal in 6,000 years, if we say there are 1 billion people 
that still leaves 99 billion people. You know, I, it's just the, a part of me. I, I, I love stories and I love human stories of all, most of all. Uh, in fact, I, I've always thought that, you know, I, I've probably been a pretty poor minister as far as giving advice or, or even speaking and preaching because I just love to listen to people tell their story. It's a period of time in early in my ministry that I, 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 would, I didn't want to use the phone. I didn't want to talk to people. I wanted to sit in their room and I wanted to hear them tell me their story. And in those years, there were dozens and dozens of new people. And to hear their story was fascinating to me. And I remember so many of those stories over the years, hearing about how people came into the truth. And it was very, very interesting to me. Can you imagine 99 billion stories being told? 99 billion life experiences that are going to burst on the scene at a period of time after the millennium. Again, the first resurrection, number-wise, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it, obviously. It's called the better resurrection. But the number-wise is a small, tiny fraction of what will be seen after the millennium. The great white throne judgment, as we call it. For the sake of the sermon today, I've summarized, and this is going to be a, a really over, oversimplification of the beliefs in final judgment or eternal judgment into three. Three basic beliefs, and I want to talk about those today. And I want to conclude with what we believe, why we believe it, and why we teach it. It's important, though, that we understand what is being said, what has been said, on this particular subject, even sometimes within the Church of God community, specifically, in, in my case, uh, the Church of God's Seventh Day, and some of my conversations with their leadership, actually being at their college at one point, uh, actually being asked and actually doing some classes for them, and being told what they believed, which is very different than what we believe. In fact, they accused us, and one of their strong arguments against us is that we believe in a second chance and they don't. Which means their belief is that what happens in this lifetime is it. And everyone is going to be judged by this lifetime. My immediate question was, well, what about a child? What about an infant? How does that work? Their stock answer is exactly the same answer you would get from any Protestant. God knows he is fair, he'll take care of it. Anytime we can't really answer a question scripturally, that becomes the answer. God knows, He's fair, He's loving, He'll take care of it. Because they don't have a biblical answer for what happens. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. The three teachings are these. The first teaching is what, you, what I've just covered, that you hear so often, and that is going to heaven. Which, again, I'm summarizing as a teaching, a teaching that all judgment concludes with your death. That's it. So when you die, you either go to heaven or hell, or if you're Catholic, to purgatory. That's consistent whether it be Baptist, Methodist, Church of Christ. You know, you name, you name the church in modern Christianity as it's referred to today, and they will all believe that judgment finishes with this life. When you die, your judgment takes place. That's it. 
That's the first one. Now, that's one that we probably discard immediately because we already know we don't believe that. But why do we not believe that? What is that based upon? The second belief is a little more complicated. The second belief is that judgment is now on the church, 1 Peter 4, 17, but salvation is given at the resurrection and not at the time of death. That's good. Those in the first resurrection being judged righteous and those in the second resurrection after the millennium being judged based on this life. In that sense, it is no different than the Protestant or the Catholic theology that this life is it. Again, I don't know that all of the Church of God Seventh-day teaches that or believes that. I simply know that, as I said a number of years ago, when I was asked to teach some classes for them on church history, on Sabbatarian history specifically, I sat down with them. They wanted to know, well, can, can we go over what you believe? And I said, well, sure. And they said, well, there are three things that we don't agree with that you believe in. It says, first of all, we don't agree with the Holy Days. We keep the Passover, but we don't agree with the Holy Days. Secondarily, they said, we don't believe that the United States and Britain are descended from Israel. We don't, we don't believe that. And they said, thirdly, we believe this is the only day of salvation. And I said, well, okay, fine. Well, what, is, what does that mean of people who never knew the truth? What about a Hindu or what about a Muslim? He never understood Scripture. Never, uh, were, they grew up in a culture that was totally devoid of these principles. And that's where the answer is, well, God will take care of that. But this is it. As they said, we do not agree with you because you teach a second chance. Again, no matter how, and I didn't really try very hard to explain, well, we don't believe in a second chance. In their minds, that summarized our belief in the second resurrection. And therefore, they rejected that. And there are those that teach that. I want you to think about that. This teaching says that if you're a Muslim, a Hindu, a Catholic, or any other religion, including idolatry, and God knows your heart, that's the word, they, the phrase they use, and will judge you for the kingdom or for hell when you are resurrected. In other words, there is no physical life to be lived and judged after the millennium in the great white throne judgment. All judgment is completed in this life. And sentence, of course, is passed in the resurrection. This teaching does not address the unborn, nor does it really address children at all. In this teaching, judgment is based solely on this life. Solely on this life. This was characterized, as I said, by my discussion with, uh, actually at that time he was the president of the General Conference of the Church of God Seventh Day. So there are those that follow that belief. They don't believe in going to heaven, which we support that, but their belief is that this life is it. Whatever culture you grew up in, God kind of knows. Now, if you follow that through, that says there's no need for the church because all you need to do is be a good person. Follow your culture wherever you may be, and that's going to be okay. In other words, God has one standard here, but he has a different standard over here. There isn't one single standard for eternal life or eternal judgment. That's number two. Number three, of course, is the teaching of the church, which, is, which encompasses three resurrections, one resurrection at the return of Christ and before the millennium, and two after the millennium. Which of these three is correct? Keep in mind, as I said, there are two parts to judgment, just as in our judicial system today. Determination of guilt or innocence 
and passing of sentence if found guilty, similar to a modern trial today. Let's talk about each of these three. I won't spend a lot of time on the first two, but I do want to talk about them. The first teaching, that when you die, judgment is, is past. You are, it's determined at the moment of your death, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. What is that based on? What are the scriptures for that? Well, you can study as much as you want. You can read all the literature you want. You can become the greatest biblical scholar the world has ever known. And you'll come back to oh, there are only a handful of scriptures that can even be remotely sort of shoehorned into this belief. It's amazing that this is such a common belief, and you know, you could almost say like the Trinity, it's such a common belief, and yet it has such little biblical support. In fact, I would say in this case, it has no biblical support. This belief is based upon primarily two scriptures in the book of Luke, or two sections of scripture. One is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man found in Luke 16, and the other is Christ and the thief on the cross found in Luke 23. I won't take the time to go through these. I'll just make mention of them. In the case of Lazarus and the rich man, you need to go. I will, I will go to this scripture, Luke chapter 16, verse 14. In order to understand a parable, you need to know what, what is the point of the parable. What is the point of the parable? What's the point of the story? Uh, Luke 14, I'm sorry, Luke 16, verse 14 tells us the point of, that, of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. Christ is speaking to the Pharisees and he says they are lovers of money. So he tells them a story. Keep in mind it's a parable, it's a story, it's not a real life event. There are several things in the story that clearly show that it's not a real life event. Uh, some want to make it a real life event because of the name of Lazarus. So by naming Lazarus they're saying well Christ is referring to a real life event. Not just a story, but you cannot read that parable without realizing it's a parable and a story and not a real life event. There are too many things there. The purpose of the parable is simple. Keep in mind a parable has one primary purpose. That doesn't mean other things can't be extracted from it. You're certainly not going to go to heaven through Lazarus and the rich man. It won't get you there. It never mentions heaven in this section of scripture. So Christ takes two extreme opposites to make his case. An extremely rich man, an extremely poor man. He isn't declaring that every poor person is righteous and every rich person is unrighteous. That's not the point. The point is a love for money. The rich man in this parable has a love for money and lives sumptuously. The beggar has no money. We're told nothing about his attitude. We're told nothing about anything about him, except that he's very poor. And he, and he takes the crumbs from the rich man's table. Of course, they both die. One of the, the confusing parts of this parable is found in verse 24, where the rich man wakes up in the grave. He's in the grave, he wakes up, and he carries on a conversation with Abraham. Now, of course, we know Christ tells us Abraham's dead, he's buried, he's not alive. So this isn't a real life event. It doesn't mention heaven. It mentions, of course, the, the poor man or the beggar being in the bosom of Abraham. Close relationship with him. Somewhere, this is in the future. And then we read, of course, the, the beggar, I'm sorry, the rich man comes up out of the grave, Hades, which is the grave. 
And he carries on a conversation with Abraham. Now keep in mind, what, what is presented in this parable is that there is a ever-burning hell and there is heaven, heavenly bliss. And contrast the two. Well, that's not the point of the parable at all. But they, they point to this verse here and they say, it says here at the end of this verse where uh, the rich man begs, Lazarus, it says, begs Abraham to send Lazarus with a, tip, a little bit of water to cool my tongue. For he says this, for I am tormented in this flame. It is impossible for a physical human being, which obviously this individual is coming up out of the grave, to carry on a conversation while burning to death. It isn't happening. And in fact, when you look at the structure of the, of the verse in Greek, in the word for in, is easily translated by and refers to mental anguish, not physical pain. So he's resurrected and he sees his future, which is to burn up in the lake of fire, which is consistent with other scriptures. And he says, help me, I'm tormented by the flame. Not in the flame, by the flame. And then, of course, you have the story of the beggar, of course, being in a relationship with Abraham. This would, of course, be future into the kingdom of God. And the rich man being judged because he only wanted his rich. This was to be a wake-up call to the Pharisees, and I don't think they got it at all. And, of course, today that becomes the basis. You read Catholic theology, Protestant theology, the basis for proving there is an ever-burning hell and there is eternal life in the kingdom of God or in heaven, as they would say. Heaven is not mentioned at all in this section of Scripture. Where will Abraham be? Of course, he'll be in the kingdom of God. Where will that be? He's resurrected on this earth. None of this contradicts anything, anything that you and I believe regarding Scripture. We also have other verses like John 3.13, no one has ascended to heaven. No one has ascended to heaven. But some would say, well, what does it really matter? We're all going to find out one day. Well, if you read the scripture, you'll find out it does matter to God. We're told that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. We also have the reference in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul talks about individuals who were teaching that the resurrection was already passed. And Paul accused them of heresy and of undermining the faith of many people. That is a problem. What you believe is important and that you believe the truth. You know, do we have all of the truth? Are we capable of ferreting everything out? Not yet. But we do have the truth that God has revealed to us. That's the first teaching. Our conclusion here is that there isn't a single verse in the Bible to support either going to heaven after you die or burning forever in hellfire. Just simply doesn't exist. Teaching number two, as I said, is a bit more complicated. It makes you feel good to say that, well, you know, we're being judged now. Those that have been called, those that are in the church today are being judged and will be in the first resurrection. That's a very small percentage of humanity. Well, what happens to everyone else? God knows their heart. God will render a judgment on each one of them. Now, it is true that God will render a judgment, and maybe that makes you feel or makes someone feel good by avoiding the difficult question. What happens to 99 billion people who are not a part or have never been a part of the, this way of life, of the church, or never knew the truth in this lifetime? 99 billion people 
their judgment is based on something else. Your judgment's based on this, their judgment's based on something, just their heart. Well, if that's true, consider the ramifications of that. A Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, a Hindu, a Buddhist could walk from church one day into the kingdom of God without any difficulty because their heart was good. Is that God's plan? If that's God's plan to take care of 99 billion people, 99% of all humanity, by simply saying, well, I know your heart is good, okay, you're in the kingdom. Now, your heart's bad, you're not in the kingdom. With nothing to base it upon. I shouldn't say nothing, obviously, God knows your heart, and that's an important thing. I'm not discounting that. I'm simply saying, is that the way it works? Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. There's a very important principle here, and this we must keep in mind as we consider eternal judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. Wait a minute. If 99 billion people are simply waved into the kingdom because they had a good heart, they were sincere, they did good works. After all, aren't we judged by our works? Therefore, they enter into the kingdom of God. Wait a minute, there's a step missing. What happens to repentance? What happens to repentance of idolatry? If you could be a good Hindu, and I've met a number that I would consider good people. I, we have a driver in India that's a Hindu, and he's a very nice man, a very family-oriented person. Hinduism worships 300 million gods. Is there not a requirement for repentance at some stage before salvation? Can there be salvation without repentance? The Bible does not open that door. And we're told that repentance is necessary. So when do these people repent? The 99 billion that are not a part of the first resurrection. It's accepted that they will be resurrected after the millennium. This, this belief teaches that. Yes, they will all be resurrected after the millennium. But their judgment will not require any of the things that were required in the first resurrection. If you're a good person, well, what level of good is required? Is 10% good enough? If this is true, then there is no compelling reason to teach the gospel or be a part of the church. Under this scenario, the vast majority of people who will be in the kingdom will have no relationship with uh, the true Christ, nor will they have any knowledge of Him, the Sabbath, the church, or anything, or never have kept a holy day, or anything of that nature. 99 billion people, 99% of all humanity. What kind of plan is that? What does that plan tell us? Well, that will certainly be true of those resurrected after the millennium. That is, they will be judged after the millennium. By what works will they be judged? Why are there books opened in Revelation 20? And what are those books? And what about the book of life? Understanding and practicing the truth has no significance under this teaching of judgment. Now, the, someone who believes this may claim differently. Oh, no, no, we need to obey God. We need to be a part of the church. My question is, why? 
If 99% of all humanity will simply be judged by the qualities of their heart, then why can't I be judged by that? Why am I penalized for, I mean, I, I, I use the word penalized carefully. I'm not suggesting it's your or I being penalized. But why should it be different for us than for them? Our conclusion, maybe I should say my conclusion, the problem with this teaching is it denies several basic teachings. First of all, the need for repentance and the need to show fruits of repentance before receiving eternal life. There is no place in the Bible that you can interpret that eternal life can be given or is given without these steps. When are these steps taken, in, or taken care of? If you look at uh, several scriptures, and before we get to number three, and we're coming to number three now, and we'll spend the rest of the time there. There are several scriptures about judgment that we need to take into account. Matthew eleven twenty four, 24, and I'll go through these rather, rather quickly. Matthew eleven twenty four, you're familiar with that. Christ made this rather strange statement, and I say strange in the sense, depending upon your belief as to how this would be interpreted. Matthew 11, verse 24, Christ said it'll be more tolerable in the kingdom, for, I'm sorry, in the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you. Now, wait a minute. Their life is over. Haven't they, I mean, they, they were judged to be evil and their lives were taken. If you believe that judgment ends at death, there can be no tolerance for Sodom. The only way there can be tolerance for Sodom is if their judgment has not been done. Also, if you think about judgment having been done at death, then why is there a need for you know, anything beyond the first resurrection? If Christ knows the hearts of all of these people, and I, I believe He does, then why aren't they simply in the first resurrection? Well, they have to wait a thousand years because they weren't, weren't what? Is that the standard of judgment? That's my point. Matthew 11, verse 24 implies that there is a day of judgment that will include an opportunity to change. Otherwise, there is no hope for the Sodomites. It's over for them. Christ didn't say that. Romans 2, verse 2. We're told the judgment of God is according to truth. Wait a minute, I thought it was just according to your heart. It's also according to truth. Now we're going to get to the fact that there are books opened uh, at the time of the great white throne judgment. And of course, 1 Peter 4, verse 17 says, judgment is now, begins now at the house of God. We understand that. But read the rest of it. Where will the ungodly appear if it's first starting with us? There's more to come that involves the same standards. The same standards. Acts 24, verse 15, there's a promise of the resurrection of all the dead, both righteous and unrighteous. All the dead will be resurrected. When Christ walked this earth, what was central to his teaching? Well, we need go no further than Mark chapter 1. Central to Christ's preaching was repentance. Repentance. Wait a minute, was that only for this time? Only for our day, that those who did not hear the message, consider that Christ was in, in the, you know, the small country of Israel in the Middle East. There were people living in other parts of the world that never heard of Christ. In fact, there are many of them that never heard of Christ for hundreds and hundreds of years later. 
living and dying, what must they do? What will they do? Is the gospel that important? Is repentance that important? Christ tied repentance with what? The kingdom of God. Repentance, kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, the apostle Paul requested that, re that the individuals must repent and they must show the fruits of repentance prior to judgment. Well, does that only apply at this time? How does that apply in the future? So what do we learn about judgment? Just looking over a few scriptures. Judgment by Christ will be final. It is eternal judgment. In Christ is, told, we're told, will be the judge in John 5 and also Romans 14. It says there, uh, there's a standard, but it also implies that there is a standard of judgment that must be the same for everyone. No indication that there is a different standard of judgment for different people. In fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to talk about impartiality and impartiality with God. Now, the amount of time is not at stake. It could be days, weeks, months, or years. But there is no pathway to the kingdom of God except through repentance. There's no pathway there. Again, it doesn't have to be for many, many years or many, many weeks or many, many months. But it must be. Can someone, can someone be judged without the opportunity to know of Christ and to repent of his sins? That's the question. Is there an uneven playing field? Some must obey God and follow his way of life, while others only need to be a good person with no additional requirements. Or is there one accepted standard for judgment, and those in the kingdom of God must meet that standard? Does that standard include repentance? Does that standard include obedience? Does that standard include faithfulness? Does that standard involve truth and knowledge? Keep those questions in mind as we advance to the third teaching, which is what the church teaches. The third teaching consists of three resurrections, corresponding to three categories of people. Every single human being will fall into one of these three categories. The righteous, those that are in the first resurrection. The uncalled, those that are in the second resurrection. And the unrighteous, those in the third resurrection. Now again, the fact that it's simple and neat and has the three categories and encompasses everyone does not necessarily make it true. I simply present in summary of what we believe. Now 2 Peter 3 uh, mentions the, a thousand years. Uh, but outside of reference to a thousand years, there's only one place in Scripture that the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ is even mentioned. We base our doctrine of the millennium from one chapter in the Bible. And I say base it. I mean, we have other scriptures to support it, but a specific reference, reference to a thousand-year reign of Christ is found only in the book of Revelation and only in chapter 20. You know, we, we, we find that. Now, again, as I said, there, there are many other verses, but keep this in mind, that in the first seven verses of Revelation 20, the thousand-year millennium is mentioned six times. So it's not as though it's, it's obscure or it's not as though it isn't there. It is indeed there. But this makes Revelation 20 an extremely important chapter. In fact, in uh, John Wolford's uh, book on the commentary on the book of Revelation, he says, Revelation through chapter 19 is filled with symbolism and, and, and uh, all these uh, metaphors and other things. But it, it's, and this is, again, his view, his opinion. He said, when you get to Revelation 20, now it becomes real. And Revelation 20 lays out the reality 
a final judgment. And it lays it out in a chronological fashion, which leads us, of course, to our teaching that we have today. Let's go to Revelation 20. Revelation 20 can be divided into six almost equal parts, but each expresses a significant event that is going to happen in the future, leading us to final judgment in the last four verses of Revelation chapter 20. Consider the different parts. Part number one, Revelation 20, one through three, we have Satan's, or Satan being uh, put away for a thousand years. As I said, notice again, uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, thousand years is mentioned. The, the reign of Christ, the thousand years is mentioned six times in those seven verses. As I said, that's not an obscure teaching. It's a very clear teaching of Christ reigning for a thousand years. Other verses support that. They don't mention a thousand years. Uh, other mentions of a thousand years are not talking about the reign of Christ, but certainly they can be applied. Uh, Second Peter says a, a day as, as, as a thousand years with God. You can interpret that in different ways. Uh, but it refers to a thousand years there. But the millennium is referred to, the, what we refer to as the millennium, the reign of Christ on earth in Revelation chapter 20. So the first uh, three verses are Satan being bound. This, of course, is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. Uh, you have, if you go back a little bit, you find the last, all the final holy days being fulfilled. Revelation 19, the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have that there, of course, the, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, keeping in mind, of course, we do not teach that Christ must return on the Day of Trumpets. The Day of Trumpets symbolizes the return of Christ. Just like the Day of Atonement doesn't prove, prove that Satan must be put away on the Day of Atonement, but that the Day of Atonement pictures the putting away of Satan. Just as the Millennium pictures, or the Feast of uh, Tabernacles pictures the Millennium, uh, not that it even begins or has to on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these we need to be careful with. The Scriptures provide sim symbols we expect because, well, Christ died on Passover, therefore all these things must happen on these days. Well, maybe they will, but maybe they won't. These days picture something. That's the significance. We must keep that in mind. Notice that, again, uh, beginning in verse 4, the second part of Revelation 20, chronological order. We find the first resurrection referred to. Uh, the saints who have been martyred will be resurrected along with all the saints. This is at the return of Christ, which we referred to back in Revelation 19. This makes it clear that there are uh, clear that that uh, there are no more resurrections until after the thousand years. Stated very clearly. Uh, this makes it clear, though, that there are at least two resurrections. Uh, you don't need to call something the first if it's the only. So there must be at least another one. And we are told there is another one after the millennium. Uh, the third part of Revelation 20 is found in verses 5 and 6. The first resurrection implying that at least there is a second, is also referred to in part three. Part four, Revelation 20, verses seven through 10, the loosing of Satan and the final revolt. And this always generates questions. Well, why, do, why does this happen? Why is Satan released for this short while? And I think any answer we give is, is speculation. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. I did find an author that I thought gave, gave four possible reasons that to me sound plausible. I'm not saying any one of them is correct, but they sound plausible. His four reasons were this. Number one, to demonstrate that man, even under the most favorable circumstances, without God, will fall into sin if he, has, if he makes his own choice. Number two, 
to demonstrate the foreknowledge of God, who foretells the acts of men as well as his own acts. And God predicts if you go down this road, this will happen. Number three, to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of Satan, how absolutely powerful he is when it comes to deceiving human beings. Or number four, to make clear the need for eternal punishment, not eternal punishing, but eternal punishment. That is to show the unchanged character of wickedness, even under divine jurisdiction for a long period of time. Now, I don't know if any of those are correct, but I thought those were at least plausible reasons. After part four, after Satan is now put away again, Satan is no longer around for the great white throne judgment. Part five begins in verse 11. Verses 11 through 12 is the great white throne judgment. That is the fulfillment of the last great day. And then we have the second part of the last great day. Uh, part six would be the final category, verses 13 through 14, of those who were called, knew the truth, but were not faithful. This would require a third resurrection, if that is indeed correct. Let's go now and examine the verses. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. And notice verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded uh, for their witness, uh, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we're told in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Those who were resurrected. And then it says there, there will be no other resurrection until after the millennium and after Satan is released, following chronologically through. Now verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven passed away. Or uh, yes, fled away. And there was found no place for them. You must be careful here. This does not say that the heaven and the earth are destroyed. That doesn't happen until we get to Revelation 21. Well, what does it mean, fled away? Well, let me back up a moment. It's clear that the earth isn't destroyed because we're going to talk about the lake of fire at the end of this chapter. You could have no lake of fire if the earth is gone. If the earth doesn't exist anymore, there is no lake of fire. The lake of fire is first introduced in Revelation 19, the first time. It comes into existence at this point in time. But it's on the earth. It's not, <laughs> certainly not in heaven. It's not off, you know, sort of hovering somewhere. It's on this earth. So the introduction of the lake of fire as a final judgment cannot happen if the earth is suddenly destroyed at this point. The earth isn't destroyed. Uh, one scholar explains it this way, and I think it's, it's fairly accurate. That it's just like when uh, the sun rises in the morning and suddenly all the stars that had been there before disappear because of the brilliance of the sun. Now they're not destroyed, they're still there. But there's such brilliance in the sun that you don't see them anymore. And he equates that to the coming to this earth of this great white throne. It's a white throne. It's brilliant. And the brilliance of Jesus Christ rendering final judgment. That everything else sort of disappears. It's, it's not significant. You know, significant in the sense of being able to, you focus on it. And therefore the reference to fled away. Heaven and earth are used metaphorically in many scriptures. God declared to Israel that he had called heaven and earth to witness against them. God created the heavens and the earth, therefore their existence was a witness against Israel. Paul wrote that the entire creation groans for the return of Jesus Christ, heaven and earth. 
So that, that's more the reference here as to what's happened, the brilliance of this throne coming down to this earth. And he that sat on the throne, the power of, of certainly God, of Jesus Christ. And I saw the dead, verse 12, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Why books? Now keep in mind that the previous teaching was that this is all determined based upon your heart and the works that you had before. So what are these books about? And then another book is called the Book of Life is Opened. So the, the books have some bearing on the Book of Life. These books have something in them. Now, we don't know exactly what they are. They could simply be Scripture. Scripture is obviously books. But something in there provides a standard, which Scripture does provide the standard for judgment. In other words, what works are you looking for? Well, you were nice to old people, therefore that's, that qualifies. No, there's something in those books that's specific enough that judgment is rendered. Wait, hold on a minute. When do these individuals have an opportunity to repent? Without repentance, there can be no further advancement. The implication, of course, is their judgment is a period of time in which they have an opportunity to live life according to these books and then be in the book of life. Again, the Bible doesn't provide any qualifications as, as far as how long. We don't know. In fact, if you take the parable in Matthew chapter 20 of the, the vineyard, of working in the vineyard, those who came early received a penny, and those who came at the eleventh hour received a penny. But guess what? They all worked in the same vineyard. They all did the same job. But to have done it for an hour, they received the same reward as those who had done it for 12 hours or 10 hours, whatever the time was. Judgment is the same. Judgment requires, or entrance into the kingdom of God, requires repentance and fruits showing your repentance. That's what scripture tells us. That's what doctrine tells us. That's what we read consistently throughout the Bible. So these books that are open contain in some form the standard of judgment that all are going to be judged by. It says the dead, small and great. They're called the dead, small and great. In, uh, encompassing what we would call the uncalled. All of those who have been uncalled who were not given that opportunity to have a relationship with Christ during this lifetime. And there are billions of those, billions of those. They're going to be judged by a lifetime, whatever that may be, of living or understanding the truth, being called. And that will happen during the great white throne judgment. Very, very important. But then what happens in verse 13? What is this final section about? The sea gave up the dead. Now, didn't we already read that the dead, small and great, had already been resurrected? What is this about the sea giving up the dead who were in it? The sea is symbolic of, of a tragedy. The sea is symbolic of darkness. The sea is symbolic, and, and you'll see that these are individuals that are resurrected and are tossed into the lake of fire. Their judgment has occurred. Their judgment has occurred. The only time you see death in Hades mentioned, verse uh, 13, and then in verse 14, referring to the same group of people. And there is no, you know, they're judged by their works, yes. These are not the uncalled. These are not the called that were faithful. These are the called who were not faithful. And however many that may be, 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it. There's a resurrection. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. This is not the terminology of verses 11 and 12. There are no books introduced. No books introduced. The book of life is not even referenced here. Some will say, well, we're just repeating what was done in, in verse 12. Well, no, we're not just repeating it. There's no reference. If you were repeating it, you would make a reference to the books and to the book of life. This is something different. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. That group, this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The two outcomes, eternal life or eternal death, take place here in final judgment. Now, how do we know some of this stuff? Well, 2 Peter 2, uh, verse 20, talks about individuals who were called, who received God's Spirit and rejected it. And what does it say there? It would have been better for them had they never been called. Why? Because their judgment has been made. That's significant. Now, again, we don't make that judgment. We don't determine that. Uh, we don't decide that. That's where God certainly does decide that, and I don't think that's a cop-out. I think it would be terribly wrong for us to be assigning people to the kingdom of God and to the lake of fire. That's why it's only Christ. There's no mention of our having being there, or I'm sorry, of doing that. It's Christ. Everybody appears where? Before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is that judge, and he will determine that. But there are clearly some who will fall into that category as defined here in Scripture. Uh, 2 Peter 2 talks about also Hebrews chapter 6. If someone you know, casts dispersion upon, they, they depart from, they've received the Holy Spirit, it says, uh, they've tasted of the heavenly calling, they've been down that road, they're there, and they throw it away. It says there's no further repentance for them, which means, again, you come back to the teaching that repentance is necessary for the kingdom of God. Therefore, we find the fate here in this place. Again, we don't have to get into judging. Well, what about someone? I, how many? Every, all of us know dozens of people that have left the church. We don't have to worry about their judgment. We don't have to worry about it. We can be concerned. We wish they were still in the church, but that will be. That's the part that will be sorted out by God and certainly by Jesus Christ and not by us. Well, let's come back now to where we began. There are three teachings as I laid out today. The first teaching is about heaven and hell, that your eternal life in, in, the, in the heaven or eternal or burning forever in hell fire is determined at death. The first teaching is that final judgment occurs when you die. It's done. You go to one or the other or if you're Catholic to purgatory, maybe. The second teaching, as I said, is a bit more challenging. It is the teaching of some, as I said, the Church of God's seventh day, to my knowledge, this is their teaching. It may be comforting to some to know in some cases that if you just lived a good life, you'll be ushered into the kingdom of God. But that teaching contradicts so many scriptures about repentance, about fruits of repentance, and all the things that God expects. And as I said, Matthew 20, where you have the full day of work, some come in at the 11th hour, and some come in at the first hour, but the reward is the same. But they work in the same field, they're doing the same job, there's consistency, there's one standard of judgment. It doesn't change. And the third teaching, of course, is what we believe. That based upon the scriptures, and our, certainly our understanding of the scriptures, that there's one plan for all mankind, and that that plan includes every single human being. 
It proves God's love for humanity. It proves the ultimate in God's creation, that everyone has a place in that plan. The first resurrection for the righteous, those who are, those who are called and those who are chosen and those who are faithful, as Revelation 17 says, who are in that first resurrection. The second resurrection is of the uncalled, those who were never given an opportunity. They were never given a, the opportunity to repent and receive God's Holy Spirit. That's 99%, in my opinion, of everybody that's ever lived, which is enormous, an enormous number. And then the third resurrection that we believe, and certainly hope will be a very, very minor, only those who were certainly incorrigible and who turned away from something God had given them. The third resurrection to damnation. These judgments are given by Jesus Christ. John 5, he is called the final judge, or he's called the judge. It is the final judgment. Whenever someone discovers that you don't believe, you will go to heaven when you die. And then they say to you, you believe what? I hope you'll be able to explain with confidence that you believe in the kingdom of God coming to this earth and that every human being is of value in God's sight. And therefore, everyone will be given an opportunity for eternal life even those who never heard of Jesus Christ or who died tragically as a child or even the unborn. What a day it will be when 100 billion people are resurrected. 100 billion, 99 billion, or whatever the number may be. There is nothing to compare to the magnitude of that day. Even the return of Jesus Christ in the first resurrection, in magnitude, by that I mean numbers, doesn't remotely compare to this last great day and the great white throne judgment. There is nothing to compare to it. That's the real plan, and it's based on God's love for all mankind.